Coming up next, the bookening continues. It's epic delve into Russia. I hope we don't starve. Brandon's not going to starve. Welcome to the Bookening. My name's Nathan Albertson. I'm your best friend. Ha! 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 Loser. <laughs> you should make some real friends. Don't just listen to a podcast. Go out. Have fun. Ask a lady out if you're a man. Ask a man out if you're a lady. Or if you're married, specifically ask your spouse out. Yeah, yeah depending don't ask on, somebody else depending out. Depending on who you are, there may be very specific guidelines no not guidelines there may be law restrictions restrictions and strong encouragements for how you do that but the point is experience life to its fullest yes eat an apple watch a sunset yeah take a drive do all three at once do all three at once could you do all three at once you can drive in a sunset while eating an apple yeah yeah that's what you should do now we are talking about a great novel and i want you all to read it i don't want you to not read it that's another thing you could do is read war and peace it's not that bad it's like reading two of the later harry potter books or something like that you have done things like this in your life and you can do war and peace it it it, it won't it won't kill you in fact it'll make you stronger it's war and peace it's great it's right up there although i'd say read anna karenina first because i think it's better but we're we're gonna get to that and we'll talk that's that's where i'm at but Anna Karenina is better. Yeah, I think so. Sorry, Brandon. Well, let's talk about it. Let's let's yeah. let's, let's, let's let me introduce us. Nathan Alberson, humble and obedient host, agent provocateur. <laughs> uh, what's the other thing I say about myself? Lord of validation. Yeah, yeah. We got Brandon Chastine, scholar who's baller of reading. We got uh, hi, Brandon. Hi. You sound like that. Uh, Jake, the pastor who's a master of reading, sounds like this. Yeah, there he is. That's me. This that's is how him. I sound. That's how he sounds. And we have been talking about War and Peace. Brandon provided some fantastic context and. Where do we even want to start? I guess we I did you have something you wanted to something burning on your chest? Burning? No, no, no. I think it'll be fun to talk about because I think I mildly disagree. I understand where you're coming from, but I think War and Peace is better. Yeah. I think Anna Karenina, I think I've already I told you. I also think, think that you have your reasons. I think Anna right. Karenina is the better novel. I think War and Peace is the better work. The of better fiction. artifact of human history. Yeah. I I could be go- willing to go there with you. I don't think I am. <laughs> I think I understand what you're going to say. You're going to say, well, War and Peace isn't really a novel. It's its own thing. No, and, uh, that's not what I'm going to say. That's not what you're going to say? No. In that tone of voice? No. I thought that I was accurately I and sympathetically portraying your point really of view. idiotic and yeah. stupid. <laughs> yeah. Unlike my opinion. Right. <laughs> and I was going to say, well, Brandon, your opinion. How do you think it feels to be so insecure you have to... L- l- caricature everybody's contrary I opinions i don't know i don't know yeah that'd be weird <laughs> it would I, be I wonder, weird i wonder how someone would feel and the first thing i'll get on on the table which we're going to talk about today is right. i know that there's a lot of nostalgia for this book for me too yes and so a lot yeah. of these characters just mean a lot more to me than the characters in anna karenina and i do think that matters quite a bit yeah and i'm kind of the reverse i yeah. read anna karenina you guys can approach pretty it. formative age teenager and all i am yeah. all, all i'm glad to say approaching this book is that it didn't fall apart. Is that all that you're glad to say? No, it's you don't have anything else. At this that moment, you, at this moment, I'm say. glad to say. Okay, 
because we approach we've we've reread some books from our past in the bookening, and they don't always hold up. Yeah. No, but this book is easily one of the best things we've read. No question. Uh, yeah, there's yeah. zero I mean, question about that. <laughs> this is in the top three. Three. Yep. Yep. And Anna Karenina would be one of the other slots as far as I'm so concerned. So he's got those Same. two spots. Yeah. And then I don't want to argue about who would fill the three third spot, but well, Tolstoy I'm, gets two of them. So yep. there you go. If it's off the top of my head, it's these two in Pride and Prejudice. Yeah. I think that's probably. That was where my gut was headed too. Yeah. I East mean, of Eden I put, is running yep. in. East of Eden's going to, I'm still going <laughs> to want to put that top five. East of but, Eden, sentimentally, I probably like better than any of those, but it's not as good. In terms of, an, well, yeah. of work of art, no way. Yeah. yeah. He just doesn't quite get up there. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's probably got to be Pride and Prejudice. No, I think it's these three. Yeah. yeah. Pride and, both works by Tolstoy and Pride and Prejudice. Well, there you go. That's the bookening three. Yep. And if we had five, if we had five, then it would be much easier because we could start to talk about things like my Antonia, like, I don't know. We could talk about Any, all kinds of things. a number of other Austin books. Ready Player One. Maybe we'll do that at the end of year five, our top five. Yeah, well, we're coming up pretty soon. This year, we're going to hit our- Five five for five? Yeah. Five for five is good. We're going to hit our 200th anniversary. Or no. Our 200th anniversary. <laughs> wow, we've been around a we long old. time. <laughs> you wonder where Brandon gets his context. He was friends yeah. with all these people. Yeah. <laughs> we're all told story, man. <laughs> no we are coming up on our 200th episode folks what i want to do then actually is do a all the books we've read fantasy draft because that just sounds super fun and cool oh boy that'll be to, to, to be able to yeah. fantasy draft that from so that's well insane well jake i think i'm gonna be able to put together a pretty great novel maybe this will be the maybe your the limits of your imagination <laughs> will fail you yeah maybe i think i'll pull out a perfectly passable hollywood <laughs> <laughs> Brandon, you can put together, you can have Dracula face off against uh, old Samuel, what's his face, from yeah. East of Eden. You put yeah, Kathy and Dracula together. Well, that's, there's, there is something. My point there. is, you can do a lot with Dracula <laughs> and someone else. Apparently, we know where Nathan's going. As long as you going. have Dracula. <laughs> yeah. Dracula versus Elizabeth Bennet. Dracula versus Darcy. I mean, Darcy would make short work of Dracula. I mean, we've got Pride and Prejudice and, va- and Zombies. We might as well have Pride and Prejudice and Vampires. That's right. right. There you go. It's already done. Why do we need this episode? Uh, well, because it's the 200th, that'll be fine. Isn't it called the Bookalarian? <laughs> yeah, it is. But or is that the 250th episode? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Let's talk about War and Peace. Okay. What's that sound? Oh. It's the airplane going over, indicating baggage check, because baggage is a thing that you have on airplane, but in kind of a play on words with that concept, or play on concepts kind of thing, you also have baggage that you bring to a book, which is why we have an airplane flyover, and it makes us, it reminds us that we need to give baggage. Like in a little segment we called baggage check. So that's what we're going to do. Let's do it. Baggage check. Guys, what baggage? Jake, we'll start with you. What baggage did you bring to war and peace? Well, I have read Anna Karenina and it's the only told story that I've read and I've loved it and would probably, would probably, we just decided that Anna, Anna Karenina is the best novel I've ever read in my life. Mm-hmm. And uh, War and Peace is right up there. And War and Peace is probably the second best novel I've read. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it is. So I came with my only baggage being super high expectations from the author of the best novel I've ever read. And he did not disappoint. And I really don't have much else to say. No. Like, I, this... I have something to say, Jake, which is that you have read another Tolstoy thing. It's a short Christmas story, one yeah. star. Get your facts right, buddy. Well, I didn't come to War and Peace having read that short story. Fair, fair. 
That was a great little short story. <laughs> I read that short story. You guys loved it, right? Oh, yeah. I read that short story in the middle of my reading of War and Peace. I will yeah. say of the three, no, actually, I'm sorry, I can't give it to him. I was going to say that Tolstoy was the best of the three, but Chekhov was the best of the three Russian short stories that we read. Chekhov's a good short story writer. Yeah. Tolstoy's a novelist, obviously. Yeah. Yep. So, facts right, Nathan. Yeah, yeah. sorry. One star. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, coming to War and Peace, not to this recording. The only other thing I'd ever read by Tolstoy is Anna Karenina. So I had high expectations. I was excited and happy from the get-go and glad to be in the hands of a master. It's nice when you have somebody that you can just trust. So yeah. even if the novel begins with, let's say, a giant chunk of French. French. <laughs> you have to read the translation <laughs> you have of to read the footnotes. <laughs> yep. You can, you're still like, oh, well, yeah. I guess he can do it if he wants to. Yeah. Uh, do you have any particular fondness or affection or feelings one way or another about Russia, Russian culture, Russian history? You like to watch it's movies. the biggest, I, it's the biggest, uh, blank spot. I mean, I was a history minor, but I, you know, Russia to me is just like the big question mark, Russian history. Most of the Russian history I know is either related to French or Western European history Mm-hmm. or what I've learned because of having to read Tolstoy. Mm-hmm. Like so much of Russian, just Russia's, Russia's a mystery to me. Understanding it's foreign to the max in a way that England and France and Germany and Italy and Spain are not. So yeah, and no particular fondness and no familial history to, you know, connections and nothing that makes me, has ever made me even remotely interested in the goings on or the happenings or the development of Russia. So you're not like some people like would watch anything about a British monarch because they're just into things they're like that. They're yeah, no, you're not a no. Russo- if anything, Russo-file. if anything repu- repulsed, you know, oh, that's a Russian thing. That's probably cold, dark, dreary, and depressing and stupid. Why? Who cares? So that's fair, Brandon. Same questions. Same questions. Yeah. What's your baggage? Would be my the, baggage. The okay. Yeah. Um, I've got a lot of baggage. Well, you better. So. Do you want to do yours first or you want me to do mine? I guess I'll do mine first because it is pretty short. I read Anna Karenina when I was a teenager and I loved it. It was one of the best experiences of reading a book that I'd ever had. Tolstoy's insight into human nature is unmatched and his ability to paint a scene is unmatched. And then I asked for War and Peace because I really love, I, I suppose we'll maybe we can talk about this after baggage, but the Piver and Volkonsky translation of Karenina was so good and it was so obviously superior to the your your average whoever did the you know penguin classics translation that was readily available on the market at the time and they were just coming out with around the time i finished Karenina, they were coming out with their war and peace so i asked for it for christmas and i got it for christmas and i was really excited about it and i attacked it and much like the French army, I <laughs> <laughs> got deep into Moscow. I got deep into and Moscow and got lost. The, the winter came. <laughs> the winter came. And I retreated. And I actually, much like the French army, I did it twice. I, <laughs> I have read the first couple hundred pages of this bad boy a couple times. And it's not that, again, much like the French army, it's not that I didn't appreciate the glories that lay therein. I just life got in the way. Life got in the way. Yeah. Yeah. Who has time? And it's one of those things where there's so many characters to keep track of. Yeah. Once you've kind of let it lapse for a couple of weeks, it's really hard, hard to, to get back in. Yes. Get back into who's it. Who and what's what? Yeah. I I want to say that a lot of this book really reminded me of my Antonia. Mm-hmm. In that Anna Karenina had 
enough plot machinations early on to drive you forward through it. Mm-hmm. War and Peace was a book that it didn't wasn't driving me forward, but everything I read was just enjoyable and pleasant. But there was no compelling reason to go back to the next chapter for a long time, except for I needed to get it done. And I just really enjoyed reading it. It's like a luxuriating in the love of reading good literature kind of thing, but he's not bothering to hold a carrot in front of you the way that... And maybe I'm misremembering Anna Karenina, but that's sort of how I felt. Well, Karenina had two things. It had the fall of Anna, which is a pretty compelling soap opera of a story, and... Frankly, the courtship of Levin and Kitty, if you're like me, you're, you know, you're, you're, both I'm, I'm enough of a simpleton. I'm like, one, oh no, right? is, like, they are. Is, yes. is, is, is Levin going to marry Kitty or not? I those hope he both, does. Those are both very early in the novel. So the, they're traditional novels right in that they give you a plot device that it then traces through how these characters respond to that throughout the novel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he this, doesn't really bother doing that. No, this is a plotless novel. <laughs> no, it, 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 yeah. War and Peace is just a collection of... It, it, it's like a photo f- photographer that just goes and takes pictures. He's like, here's some more pictures of this family. Here's some more pictures of the it's war It's like Milhauser's miniaturist mm-hmm. type guy, or not miniaturist, what's the opposite of that? It's, a, you know, it's like a- We'll read about him later this year. Yeah, yeah. Or even even the, the guy from the novel we did where he tries- Dressler. Yeah, yeah Dressler, Martin yeah. Dressler, where he tries to- Capture the whole capture world the whole within the world hotel. Within his hotel. Uh, that's like what War and Peace feels like. He's just gonna, you know, nonchalantly, slowly, just try to capture the whole world inside of yeah. this piece of literature, and it's well, gonna and go on as life goes on, and you're not really. And there are a few, it's not gonna feel like it's driven by a plot, even no. though there's a huge cast of characters. It is limited in the sense that they all connect a little bit to one another. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I had this phenomenon as I was reading it this time, where he'll have these chapters where he'll then say the name of the person who's about to be the focus for a few chapters. Mm-hmm. I could just imagine like the audience clapping as their favorite character came back on stage. <laughs> yep. Like, and now Nikolai, how was he passing his time? Or the more cynical yeah. uh, in me was, oh, oh boy, oh. now we got to spend time with this loser. Yeah. Like, I want to be back with Natasha and that yeah. crowd. That's right. Now I got to go with Nikolai and to see what he's up to yeah. in war. Oh, I sure was wondering what Lieutenant, Boris. What, what's his face was up yeah. to. For some reason, the whole chapters, you'll be like, oh, now we're in Napoleon's camp. Yeah. <laughs> you're like, what's going on? <laughs> yeah, so anyway, that's my that's my baggage. I don't have any particular love for Russia. I mean, I've seen, you know, your famous uh, things, your uh, Dr. Zhivago's and your stuff like that and enjoyed them well enough, I guess. But I I suppose I'm like Jake. Russia doesn't hold any of the mystery of like the Far East kind of uh-uh. stuff for me. And it also doesn't hold any of the grandeur or glory of the way that I think about certain eras of European history. It just feels drab. in and of itself drab, cold. Like I, if if you get, if you could give me a passport to anywhere in the world and you're going to pay my expenses, Russia wouldn't be anywhere It'd close be like on. The, one of the very last places. Yeah. I'm not interested in seeing the major cities. I I don't have any particular fondness or love for it at, in and of itself, except for insofar as Tolstoy's love for it is infectious. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've never had a desire to visit Moscow or see Moscow, except reading War and Peace. I think, you know, it wouldn't be such a bad thing to go see these places. Well, what Tolstoy does in both the novels is give you those portraits of manor life that are pretty enticing, like going hunting with Levin yeah. or with uh, Nicholas. Uh, yeah, what be- what's actually really enticing is oh you know what would be fun is to go hunting and then go into this little 
Russian cottage. Yes, and, and start dancing. Start and, dancing or watching people dance a really <laughs> Russian dance to really Russian music. Now that would be cool. Or to fall in love with Sonia in the snow. And yeah. Tolstoy can give you the romance of Russia when he wants to, but he doesn't always do it. Um, and certainly when you read Dostoevsky and some of those other guys, it's like, wow, Russia is this crappy place where insular <laughs> little jerks play out their psychodramas. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, if Dostoevsky hates Russia, why should I love it? <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like Joyce in Ireland. It's like, what's romantic about this place where everyone's a loser and <laughs> yeah, sucks? <laughs> Everything is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> well, Brandon, and as I, Americans, we think of it as this communist cold country well that, yeah i mean a lot of i mean let's not pretend like the propaganda of our childhoods that's the other thing i was going to say is i grew up with james bond movies where james bond just had to like kill the crap out of these cold horrible russians are always the bad guys people and then they're not like fun bad guys you know they're just like kind of what nazis were Russians. actually nazis are more also, fun nazis are colorful and, and well let's also not pretend like communist russia wasn't evil yeah yeah no it was and didn't deserve the hatred that it got yeah and it was drab and it was cold and it was industrial and it was not pretty and yeah ivan drago that's know, right that's not a good man although he loved his time i grew up the thinking of, the day. of his russia was he's, ivan drago he is the russia he's the russian yeah. and what is russia it's a place where you go and live in a cabin in the woods and get ripped so that you can strike a blow for freedom and chop down the russian machine and yeah. Turn all the plebes to you so they love America too. But what we really need is for a great American like Rocky Bilboa to lecture the Russians on If eyes can change, yep. yous can change, we all can change. Yay, Rocky. <laughs> he did it. He did it. Someone had to say it. <laughs> okay. Well, Brandon, what uh, baggage did you bring to War and Peace, quite a lot, I understand. That's a good start is Ivan Drago, because <laughs> I actually grew up watching the Rocky stories with uh, my dad. And so for me, Russia was just this cold, like you said, cold industrial place that you saw the f- collapse of the Berlin Wall. When was that? In the 1890s? In the 1880s. Yeah. In the 1980s, right? 1989. November There was probably 11, a wall in Berlin that collapsed. Yeah. <laughs> We're right? getting, getting my check. numbers there. Let's see if I got that Weirdly. Right. What did you say, 89? I said, no, I gave a specific date. I said November 11, 1989. November 11, let's see. Well, all right. Oh, wow, that'd be interesting if that was the exact date it happened. This doesn't seem like it'd be a hard thing to Google. November 9th. So close. You're a moron, Jake. What were you <laughs> so, thinking? November 9th, 1989. Well, you know, the problem with November 11th is that it is a consistently massive historic day in world history. You know, it's Armistice Day. It's... Mm-hmm. Oh. You know, if you'd studied modernism, you might understand. <laughs> ah, only. <laughs> hey, guess like, what? The Great War, there was one of them. <laughs> I made it through my Tolstoy context and did not mention modernism once. Yeah, that is true. That is true. Are you guys proud of me? I was proud of you. Okay, Brandon. <laughs> yeah. Your context. My context. Around 12, 13, I got introduced to Dickens. I think I've told this story before. In the year 12, 13. In we the have year 12, 13. That's established right. Established Brandon is very old. <laughs> it's very old. And I fell in love with literature, especially Dickens, and began to read vociferously. Mm-hmm. David Copperfield was my favorite book for a while, but then as I began to mature, I became more of a jerk. I became very pri- prideful of what I felt was my little world of literature. I had a friend who was really into books as well. There was that sort of posturing of ourselves as the guys who loved books, but also there was some real life going on too. Like we really loved these books and these stories that we were reading. So there wasn't, I mean, it wasn't all just bad posturing and stuff like that. I don't want to give that picture 
Another important thing that was happening at my at this time was, well, two really important things actually, where I think why War and Peace meant so much to me at the time. One, I was training to be a concert pianist. Mm. I don't know if this is something we've mentioned much on the bookening before, but I had taken piano lessons for a while. Then we had a Brazilian student come to live with us for a little while and he started to teach me and he thought that I was good and I should think about piano as a career option. And so I went and I auditioned and was began to have lessons with a professor at TCU around 15 or so. Why that's important is because that introduced me into the world of music, but especially the world of the concert, especially like the world of the concert hall. There was an important piano competition called the Van Cliburn that I was training to try and be a part of later. And it was like the Olympics of piano. And it happened in Fort Worth where I grew up in Bass Hall. And so Bass Hall is, it was this uh, musical hall that was built by this oil barons called the Bass family in Fort Worth. Had like these angels with trumpets on it and these big glass doors and you would go in and it was like walking into another world. So for a kid who grew up in a small country town in Fort Worth, my family is all some form of, no offense to my family if you're listening, redneck, right? My grandmother, she lived in the poorest fart of, uh, fart. Wow, <laughs> slip. <laughs> <laughs> she lived in the poorest part of Fort Worth. She came from a family of like 12 kids and it was just all her, yeah, I won't tell the story because she probably wouldn't want me to, but it was a bad background for her. That was my mom's mom. Her father came from Muleshoe, like a little farming community. My dad's family, my grandfather, he ran the city dump for a while for Kennedell. So that's the background I had. So it was weird to then, so I mean, it be, begins to make sense why a kid like that would feel insecure and feel like he had to posture himself some. Because I really didn't feel like I belonged in this world. This mm-hmm. was new to me. I had no clue what it was about. But here was the Van Cliburn and it was like, you would go and you would watch this concert, watch these piano players, you know, the dim lights, the smell of the wood in the concert hall, the people around you. It had this sort of magic to it, this sort of otherworldliness to it, where the art was everything and it was there on the stage. But then around me also was all the upper class people of Fort Worth, Texas. And at the time there was an oil boom, which would actually be a part of my story later on in a weird way too, but we won't get to that. But there was an oil boom happening. So there was a lot of money in Fort Worth And so you had all the rich elites either in their boxes or down watching the concert. And then after the concert, they would all go out and they would sip their champagne. They would gossip. They would um, talk about each other, which is what gossip is. (laughs) If people didn't know, there's a handy little definition. But they would also just, it just seems so cheap and sort of fake to me. It felt like they were pretending. Like this was all just a, like they did. And what offended me is for me, I really loved the music. That was part of it. And I really aspired to be a part of that musical world. But then to see this, these were the patrons of it. It, it began to feel sour to me. Does mm-hmm. this make sense? Yep. And so I think you can see why immediately War and Peace from the very first chapter appealed to me because you immediately have Pierre who feels out of place in this world going to a salon where he's not wanted. So for a young man to pick up that book exactly at that moment where you feel that, pretty foundational. So, and also at the same time, I was courting my, who would become my wife. And so there was already some of that love. And that's the other important aspect to this as well. So a lot of stuff was awakening in me. I was dealing with a lot of stuff. I was dealing with my own hypocrisy, all this stuff. And here I am at the Van Cliburn watching up in the nosebleed sections, because that's where it was cheap. This happened. uh, And I just watched my favorite performer. I remember specifically the day, Antonio Pompabaldi play some Chopin. It was amazing. I walk down, I go to Barnes and Noble and I'm looking around. I had just read Bleak House. And I wanted like, and Bleak House was big and it was different and it was strange and it was weird. And it began to 
make me realize that you could do stuff with literature beyond just the simple storytelling that Dickens had done earlier. And I was like, okay, so there's some stuff that you can do things with literature. And I, th- I was thinking about, you know, I might want to be a writer. I might want to do something like this. And so I pick up the biggest book I see. <laughs> That's really as simple as it is. The biggest book I see on the shelf and it's War and Peace. I go into the Starbucks that's in the Barnes and Noble and I sit there and I open it up. I start reading and it just blew me away. I'm like, this is, something's happening here that I was not expecting. I was expecting to sit here with the biggest novel and show everybody how better I was, how much better I was than them, how different I was than all these rich upper class that doesn't, they don't really understand music and art and all that. I mean, I couldn't really articulate these things, but these were the feelings I had, you know? And so I sit down and I read it and I mean, I fell in love with it. I read it, I bought it because I wanted to keep reading it. And then I continued to read it. <laughs> and it's been one of the novels that I continued to go back to from then until uh, through, at least through undergraduate school. So I read that and the fir- version I had there was Constance Garnett's translation. And uh, for me, that still has a very nostalgic place in my heart. Is her? She's the Victorian translator who, it reads kind of like a Dickens novel in mm-hmm. her style because she's Victorian. But also, apparently, she would just make things up sometimes, too, if she didn't know the translation. So, mm-hmm. But the, it, it wasn't enough. I mean, this is the same book I read. It's not like it was that different. Mm-hmm. This translation is much better, and we can get there in a little bit. But that's the story of War and Peace. And I think why it meant so much to me was I was Nikolai and Anna was Sonia at the time. Like, like when mm-hmm. you go into the Troika ride, we had moments like that together. Mm-hmm. There were just these things that he got about me. I felt like, so you said over... What maybe over Slack or something that you felt like you were known by mm-hmm. Tolstoy. That's really what I felt like for the first time was that even though I sympathized with things in Dickens, there was always a little falseness to it. Like there wasn't just completely true. But with Tolstoy, I felt like here's somebody who not only understood me, but could actually show me things that were worth seeing about others and about myself. Yep. In a weird way, it made me more sympathetic to the people around instead of hating them more. Because that's what, if anything, Dickens, I mean, anything Tolstoy is very sympathetic to everybody. Mm. Even Helena gets some of his sympathy. Mm. Even Anatole gets some of his sympathy, right? Mm-hmm. Even though he despises them, they still get some sort of sympathy. And so pretty much the only person who doesn't is Napoleon. <laughs> Which, I, mean, I, I, mean, I don't know, I felt sympathy for Napoleon. Yeah, I, I would mean, actually say, what's his name? Like Ra- Rashba. Restoption. Or yeah, I would yeah. say that's the one guy that to me comes across as a little bit of a caricature. But, but yeah, so like the... The ballroom scenes, everything about this world, it seemed like the world that I wanted to be a part of that was there in front of me with being a classical pianist and all that. But then also this other world of literature that I wanted to be a part of. This was just something different and new, and it was exciting. It was the greatest thing that I ever read. And so I continued to read it. I've now read it many times. I don't know the exact number, but I think that this makes my eighth reading of it. So Seven Constance Garnets and one... No, I've also read the mod translation once. And that has the benefit of they were friends with Tolstoy. And so they actually were there and he could kind of help them through their translation. Hmm. And so I, but I still liked Constance Garnett's better. I would continue to go back to her. I posted. He's read three translations. Yep. I posted a story of Constance Garnett's, my version, my copy of it. It's all torn up now. Mm -hmm. Barely held. No cover. Yeah. Barely held together. But, um, in undergrad school, uh, undergrad school. That's the, that's the, uh. The volume that'll be in the Brandon Chastine Museum. The Brandon, yeah, the there Brandon we go. <laughs> Chastine Library. Yeah. I read... Uh, Under Glass. Yeah. I, my David Copperfield is the same. It's just torn up. Those were the two books that were just fundamental to me. And so later on, I would read... Anna actually read Brothers Karamazov first, encouraged me to read it. And I loved it. I thought it was great. I think we're actually going to like Brothers Karamazov. 
but it just still was missing something. And so I would just keep going back to Tolstoy. Later on, I would find a quote by, I think it was, it was either Coleridge or Blake. I can't find the quote, but a professor told it to us. So I think it's true that they would keep going back to Milton and the Bible is the story and Shakespeare. Those were the only books they would read as an older man. Mm-hmm. And as I get older, I kind of understand that. I've heard going, that about Coleridge. Yeah, yeah. the Bible and Shakespeare. Coleridge. So going back to War and Peace now, it's like, yeah, I could see being happy with this book and just a handful of others for the rest of my life and not needing the others because I can learn enough from him and get yeah. enough from him to satisfy what I think is great about art and literature, that it gives you other perspectives. It opens up other worlds to you. Yeah, but also it teaches you how to feel and to know and to observe and to just be alive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's what Tolstoy really does well. And then guess what? The only other time I felt that was as an undergrad. I don't know why I never read more Tolstoy. I think it may be that just this felt like enough. But finally, as an undergrad, a professor got me to read Anna Karenina and I read it and it did the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. So now actually thinking back through my past, I think that actually where I'm going to land is that what's the difference? They're kind of the same. Anna Karenina and War and Peace. They do the same thing for me. They're mm-hmm. like, they are the greatest, together they are the greatest book ever written. Yeah. But yeah, that's my baggage. Uh, yeah, I have a very deep relationship with this book. I mean, this joins a handful of books where if somebody doesn't like it, I really don't want to try and tease it out with them. Not that I'm angry with them or I think that they can't have a different opinion, but I'm just, it's personal. Tolstoy's my friend. Yeah. yeah. And that's all there is to it. Yeah, reading this... Maybe even though it's a very snotty upper, not snot, um, not upper class professor sort of thing to say when C.S. Lewis said, like, I feel like there's those who get the sort of reading I like and those who don't mm-hmm. like two camps. It's like to come out and say that, you know, it's, mm-hmm. I don't hold it against him because I actually think it's partly true. And mm-hmm. reading this sort of book is where I see that line. The clearest. Where you would draw that line. Yeah. It's yeah. like you either get it or you don't. And I really don't know how to help you if you don't get it. Well, that's too bad because that's what we're going to be doing for the next two and a half episodes or something like that. So well, I mean, I, I, know, you, I know where to point. Did so. you did you tell us how many times you've read this book, you think? Seven said, or eight. Seven or eight, yeah. yeah I think eight. it's eight. You did say, okay. But I want to be, I'll be conservative and say seven. I know that for every summer I would read this book after that. And I know it was at least up through when I was doing, I mean, it stayed with me and it kept speaking to me because as an undergrad, I had to, in the summers, dig ditches for an irrigation company to make money because we got married when I was 18. Mm-hmm. And I remember specifically sitting outside, there was a Westover Hills neighborhood where all the rich people lived. And I was thinking in my head, these people go to, they're the ones who go to Clyburn and, and you yeah. know, they don't get it. Mm-hmm. And I was sitting out on my lunch break, reading War and Peace while looking inside at this beautiful cherry wood Steinway piano in this person's house. And I just was thinking to myself, I bet they never play that thing. Right. And so I was just having those feelings. Mm-hmm. There, so. <laughs> I could walk in there yeah, and play this thing in a way it's never been played before, mm-hmm. but instead I'm out here digging irrigation, yeah. ir- irrigation ditches. Yeah. Nope. So there you have it. There you have it. Well, for the remainder of this episode, we have a couple things we need to do. Let's talk about translation first. Translation is difficult because there are all sorts of different theories. And I think we, did we talk about this in detail with our first Tolstoy? Episode. We've I talked about it remember, in some context. It's worth, yeah. It's I worth. mean, this is stuff that you can speak a lot to as well, because translation theory is, has a lot to do with biblical scholarship. Yeah. And so there are multiple camps. One is the strict literalist camp, which when it comes to biblical interpretation and biblical translation is necessary. Is necessary. Then there's the camp where, well, really you want to get the spirit of the book across as close as you can. Which in biblical translation would be dynamic equivalence. <laughs> yeah. 
There's the middle camp, which says, well, you want to do a little bit of both. You want to try and preserve the author's intentions as much as you can, but also preserve some of the modern, the language you're translating into, which is where Pevier and Volokonsky, that's where they fall, is in that camp. If you read their introduction, they say what they really want is they want it to feel like Tolstoy's writing in English for you. And so they're trying to preserve as much as they can about Tolstoy right. and not try to make it American. And it sometimes reads strangely, they say, well, that's fine because that's Tolstoy. Mm-hmm. And so um, Constance Garnett would be on the other extreme where she just wanted to make it into a Victorian novel. Yep. And so you lose a lot of Tolstoy in that. But even then, I mean, like I said, it's an interesting experience having read Constance Garnett a lot mm-hmm. because she's still, I think despite her, all the characters still come through. Right. The Andre and the Pierre and the Natasha and the Sonia and the Nikolai, they were all the same characters. There was nothing different. Right. Except, I mean, you imagined them a little bit dressed like a Dickens character as opposed to a Tolstoy character. But other than that, they're the same people. I think so. I, I am wary enough of Victorian literature in general that I have always not liked Victorian translations. Like, I, I think I may have, when I first picked up Anna Karenina, I actually started, it was, did Constance Aaron kind of also, also do that, mm-hmm. um, started her version. And it was just like, this sounds like a Victorian drawing room thing and i know that's not what tolstoy was and then reading them it was like i could this is like kind of removing a smudged window and replacing it with a clean clear one i felt like i could just it was it it is an impediment for me and so i i don't know if you guys know i have kind of an aversion to victorian literature how do you jake (laughs) i thought you love victorian literature i just i just thought i'd throw that out there in case you didn't well, it's good to know. I keep trying to get you to read Dickens and like him. It helps now <laughs> to understand why that might not be going well. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, translation, it's an art as much as it is a science. And so the translator has to figure out what they're going to do and why they want to do it and then commit to that. And what I really like about this translation is I think they succeed in what they're trying to do. I, th- mm. I think it's important for anybody to just, when reading a book in translation, to just stop and recognize Put yourself in the shoes of a translator. Realize that when you're translating somebody or anything, you're translating something that's imperfect. And if you're faithful in translating something that's imperfect, then that those imperfections are going to reflect on you. So every translator has some temptation or tendency to try to translate up, translate up within their own understanding. And sometimes a, a translator will think he's translating up, but he's not. Because he's, he misses it. He doesn't quite understand what's going on. Yeah. And you just need to be... Something that is worth carrying in your head when you come to anything in translation is, I am getting whatever I'm getting as me, mediated by somebody who wants me to like them and yeah. like their work and see their work as a work of art. Yeah. And so as far as that goes, I mean, they're good writers. That helps. Yeah. Well, that's specifically what I hate about the Victorians, like Richard Burton's translation of the Arabian Nights. It's like, if you read anything about the Arabian Nights, you realize it's vulgar, it's nasty, it's sexual, it's all these things. And he's very much making it into this opaque Arabian fantasia that we all sort of think of, you know, Aladdin and all this stuff. But that's, it's not, that's just not what it is. You're not getting the Arabian Nights. And sometimes that happens (laughs) with some of the famous translations of Homer. Yeah. It's like Homer was a dirty Greek guy that was talking about earthy Greek things. And when you start to lose those aspects or shave the edges off of them. And you can be intentional about it and say, that's what you're doing. I mean, part of what we love about Seamus Haney's Beowulf is that he just decided to give us his Irish version of 
Beowulf is yeah. not Beowulf. It is but it less is. Beowulf. You could read a better Beowulf, but what he's done is given you a great Shana, uh, Haney poem, which, yes. is, right. which is arguably actually what I think we'd all prefer. But yep. we should yep. know that that's what we're getting. We should know yeah. that there's places where he's, he's, be, he's, he's not doing Beowulf the ultimate yeah. service. He's doing Haney the ultimate service. Which... In the case of things, so it gets difficult with things like, and this is something we've dealt with, like with My Soul Among Lions, Mm -hmm. is when you get into poetry, the game changes a little bit because poetry is so much, and we talked a lot about this this with our poetry episodes, Mm -hmm. poetry really is about the sound of a language. Right. Yeah. And so you, why you can't have a poem in one language translated into another poem very cleanly is because it is bound to the way that language sounds and the feelings that language evokes. And so there is a Shakespearean feel to a Shakespearean sonnet that unless you're English, you'll never feel, you'll never experience. Yep. And that feel is so much just simply capturing the ideas of the sonnet. It's like, oh, well, she's not going to, she'll always be contained in the sonnet. So she'll never grow old. It's like, that's, that doesn't really capture what's great about the sonnet. It's, it's, it's the word, it's the 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 language, it's the rhymes, it's the rhythms, it's all that. Yep. And so it's lost in, so poetry depends so much on the nuances of the language it's in. It's just inseparable from it. I don't read French, but I went through a period where I was into, uh, what's that emo guy's name? Baudelaire. Yeah. You know, because I'm all. The flowers of evil. The flowers of evil. La fleur de Yeah. Because that's the kind of thing that young Nathan would be into. And I, just young Nathan, um, (laughs) I, I read a bunch of different translations and it was like, you were just reading different poems. Like there was no good way. And there was the ones that were really clunky and presumably more captured the directly what Baudelaire was saying. And then there were the good ones where the person just wrote their own poem about. (laughs) Yeah. That was so snobby. So I, I pretended that I knew French and I actually, so Jules Laforgue was a guy that heavily influenced T.S. Eliot. So I went and I actually memorized some Jules Laforgue poems, which was really nasty and and weird. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's a dirty trick. It was a dirty trick. <laughs> <laughs> well, you were so much older and da 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 Dylan line. What I like about this translation is that it feels, I'm, I'm sure they're translating up, but they claim, and it, it's borne out by some of the awkwardness of what they do, that they're just trying to capture some of the weird nuances of Tolstoy. And so I like, for example, that they don't strain for synonyms yeah. where Tolstoy didn't. They'll say, the rain fell, this isn't a real example, this is one I'm making up, it'll be like, the rain fell on the roof, and then the rain drizzled down, and then the rain hit the character on the head. Yeah. And Tolstoy's repeating the word, and somebody like uh, Garnett might be tempted to yeah, yeah. make rain into three different words. Did you read right? their introduction? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they talk yeah, about that very thing. The repetitions, and then, yeah, just some of his rhetorical devices mm-hmm. that he would use. They were very intentional about trying to capture those. Yeah. So you can feel like, it's a lot of times, and I think they're right, that Tolstoy's brilliant succeeds despite his prose Mm -hmm. so his prose is great one of his tricks is to (laughs) not treat a metaphor like a metaphor you know he'll just say the thing was the thing and i don't have a good example off the top of my head but he has his extended beehive metaphor that he keeps using about history yeah yeah and he'll just be like the busy or here's one so sonya early in the novel is the is the kitten yes And, and he won't say she looked at him like a kitten He'll just say the kitten, the, the kitten the thing. flounced away or something like that. Yeah. And that's really charming. And that's the kind of thing that I could see a translator turning into. She gave him a kittenish look. Yeah. You know, or any number of things. But the fact that they're they just maintain it just sounds like to, to read if you just pulled the sentence out of the novel, it sounds like a, a sentence about a cat, which I really love. Yeah. And so I can't speak to how true or not true it is to Tolstoy because I don't read Russian, but 
this is a really fun thing to read in and of itself. The style yeah. that they've managed to capture here is pretty yeah. great. Um, they're the same ones we read with Anna Karenina. Yeah, and that was fantastic. Yeah. So. And they're the same ones we're doing with Dostoevsky, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. They're looked at as premier translators today. I'll be so. really interested to see how much Dostoevsky feels like a different writer. That will be an interesting experiment, yeah. Well, I think all of us have read at least some of their version of The Idiot, and he does, I would say, feel yep. pretty different. Yeah, And that, right. at least. We'll, we'll see about the Brothers K. Forgot about that. Yes. Aborted project. <laughs> Aborted project. We replaced it with something. I don't know what we replaced. That was like year one. Is that going to be our third or fourth novel out of the gate? Something like that. Probably replaced it like Hemingway or something. We replaced it with something a lot more fun. I know that. Not a big idiot fan. Guys, we kind of need to wrap this episode up, but why don't we all make our pitch, our simple pitch, for what makes Tolstoy the best? I think I kind of did it with my baggage yeah. with what made him so engaging to me, but he provides one of my, I think that quote I mentioned in context where if the world could write, it would mm -hmm. write like Tolstoy is pretty spot on as to what makes him so great is that he captures what it feels like to be alive, but also makes you more aware at the same time of what it's like to be alive. But Brandon, you're alive. Well, why, why should it matter that someone capture it in uh, words? Well, that's what I, th I think I said, that he makes it you more aware of it, too. He makes it matter more for you. Next to so, Tolstoy, everybody else, everyone is asleep, yeah. half asleep. And in a Tolstoy novel, he is a freak of nature. He is other. He is alien. He is something else. He is somebody who sees everything with a clarity that is unmatched. And it's not just like the details of life, but it's also the details that perfectly tell you about someone's character. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's like, so externally he can do everything that Dostoevsky would have taken pages and pages of psychological drama to try and represent for you. He can just do like in a little snippet. Mm -hmm. just, and we'll talk more about it, but I mean, I can already think of a few examples from the book. What's fascinating for me is how often he doesn't jump into it. There are obviously extended sections where he will jump into Pierre or Andre's head and tell us exactly what they're thinking. Yeah. But more often than not, when he's just doing a dialogue scene, he will say, his appearance seemed to suggest, or his eyes said, or his this would yeah. indicate. And so you get, the impression, you get the impression that you're having the story told not actually by an omniscient narrator, but by the world's greatest observer of human nature who's just sitting in the room and saying... This person did this, which probably meant that they were angry. Yeah. yeah. They said this, but also their feet were doing that. And right. Yep. Yeah. I mean, it's like a good filmmaker almost. You, literally, you see them say something and then you pan down and you see their feet and then you put two and two together and you're, oh, they're nervous right now. Yeah. But he'll just do that again and again and again and again and again. And then his compassion for all these characters. Yeah. I mean, it seems like every single character deserves some form of compassion from him. Well, my joke, so. but it's not really a joke, is that we'll suddenly be in the horse's mind. It happens in both Anna Karenina. Maybe in the maybe mind of the dog that's with running the dog. across yeah. the battlefield. Yeah, like, it'll be like, yeah. like there's nobody that Tolstoy encounters that he's not like, well, I wonder what they're thinking and how they're feeling about this. And, and yeah. he regards it with compassion from the horse <laughs> to the... The child who's in the war room to the yeah. dog oh, who's running yeah. across the battlefield. The little girl the, that's yeah. in the war room with, uh, yeah. what's his face? That's with a great... Kutuzov yeah, yeah. and... Benigsen and that's right and she she has no idea what's going on but she feels that 
actually there's only one thing that's happening and that's a fight between these two guys and she's yeah. inclined to the one because he's grandpa. Yeah, grandpa yeah. looks sad right now. <laughs> yeah. That's how she's yeah. processing it. <laughs> I should go sit in his lap. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> so. So, so many great, great moments. And yeah, you end up, you end up feeling like Every single character that walks on stage is unique and has a story and has a background and has their own thing and is fully known and not just fully known, but loved or sympathized with. And it doesn't matter where they're coming from. It could, they could be the stupid butler who has a line or two and that's it. Or it could be, you know, the guy who takes care of Count Rostov's finances or whoever it Mm -hmm. is like, they're not just a plot device or somebody who exists to service the characters we actually care about. That is not how anybody who comes into this novel feels. It feels like every single person is there is a breathing character. And it feels like a documentary. It feels like Tolstoy is just capturing it the way that it inevitably happened. Like if Pierre is more important, it's not because he's actually more important. It's just because he happened to do more things for Tolstoy to capture, but actually the guy that walks on that does count what's his face's finances is fully fleshed out and not there to support any kind of plot point. He's just there because of course he's there. He would be there. He's the kind of guy that would be there. Right. I don't know of another author who feels so much (laughs) like the plot doesn't matter. I mean, that's an easy thing to say about any author that is interested more in character and introspection, these kinds of things. But with Tolstoy, you almost never catch him. This character needed to show up now because the plot needed to happen. It just feels like, no, the character showed up because the character would show up because yeah. that's what happened to happen. He's yeah. so, yeah, the characters matter so much to him that the plot really is secondary. Mm-hmm. And so even the way that this book ends matches that. Well, the funny way about the book, the the, the book feels like it could go, it could be half the length or it could, get, it could go another thousand pages. It feels like it just kind of ends because... Yeah. Like, okay, well, I've observed I enough, I guess. Done. I had to be done. At some point. At some I point. I can't just tell the whole history of Russia. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> Which I'd be more than happy to do. Yeah. And I'd kind of be more than happy to read. But <laughs> Well, that's the, this is why I don't like to talk to people who don't like Tolstoy. And I'm sorry if you're out there and you don't like Tolstoy, we can be friends. But what they'll say is that very accumulation of detail drives them nuts. Like, like Levin and, or no, uh, what's his face? Anna's boyfriend's name Vronsky. Vronsky 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 and Anna are gonna go to France and they're gonna check up with some painter dude and then we have to learn the entire history of this stupid painter and like what he's going through and what the paintings like come on who cares like let's let's have some more plot let's have some more let's, let's get there there's just too much like if he could have been shorter if he could have been more disciplined then if he didn't have to feel like Everything that happens has to be fully fleshed out. Like, here's an idea. Let's not get the horse's point of view. Who cares about the horse? The horse is there to convey the interesting characters to their interesting locations. Yeah. Why should we care about the horse's feelings? Yep. I mean, we said the same thing when we read The Horse and His Boy. Yeah. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) Oh, man. We're uh, such hypocrites. We are hypocrites. <laughs> I don't know. What do you guys say? C.S. What, what, Lewis, Tolstoy. Yeah, I don't know. All right, let's not get into this. What, what do you guys say <laughs> to that interview. argument? Because I think that's that's the number one criticism I've heard from random people of Tolstoy is it's I, just too what, much. What I say is criticize uh, the, the thing that we say often in our movie critiques, which is criticize the book that he wrote, not the book that he didn't write. Uh, this is what he cares about. This is what he likes, what he enjoys. And what he knows he's good at. If you want a plot 
based novel. If you want a pot boiler that's going to have some fun characterizations along the way, you can read Harry Potter. Yeah. You, you, you want something that has deeper characterizations than Harry Potter? You can read Tolkien. You want something that's just a page turner? Like, read a mystery novel. Genres exist for a reason. And yeah, I do think that what makes Anna Karenina superior is that he manages to do all those things while keeping you mostly on mostly on the rails. Anchored of, to a, anchored on the to, rails. <laughs> I, I was aware. Yep. Pun intended, folks. Anchored to a plot on the rails. You're going from point A to point B. And he manages to, to, to do all of those things along the way, which honestly, the discursions and those places actually do feel more out of place in Anna Karenina for that reason, because you are driving it's not somewhere. a discursive book, generally speaking. Yeah, yeah, War and Peace, it's just like, the, the, this is just what it is. Like, you either like it or you don't, and that's fine. It is what it is. If you wanted a plot, sorry about you, that's not what this is about. Anna Karenina keeps you anchored to a plot throughout it. I do think that that serves more readers better, mm-hmm. makes it a better novel, but it also does make the discursions feel more discursive. But at the end of the day, you read Tolstoy to feel like, to, you read Tolstoy to better understand yourself and the people around you and to have compassion for people who are not like you and to understand yourself better. That's it. And if you are not the kind of person that likes to do that sort of thing or can enjoy that sort of thing, Tolstoy is not for you. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I... Can we go so far as to say maybe you should consider that you ought to be a little more that way if you are completely turned off by Tolstoy? Yeah, and who better to teach you? I mean, yeah, yeah. like, um, and there's, you know, we we're you, talking you, in you, binaries here, but guess what? There is a really fun section of this novel that has a lot of suspenseful plot. Oh man, I was so angry that Jake was sending me texts <laughs> and turning those pages. Boy, and, uh, is, is there a section of? Well, yeah. you get to that part of the novel, it's just like you cannot stop, and it's, it's to this day, so it makes infuriating. My, my stomach turns, and I get oh, yeah. so angry. Well, so there's oh, that. Yeah. There's battle scenes. There's a love story. Anna Karenina, the Kitty and Levin, some of the best. If you just like reading romance, if you just like reading all that stuff is there somewhere. Yeah. It's not contained within one little neat package well, that just gives point. you that. It's not the point. But if you give yourself to the other thing, you're going to get that You're, you're going to get that stuff, actually. You just can't demand it. Yeah. Yeah. Because then you'll miss what's actually good. <laughs> well, and the other thing I would add is that a lot of people who are going to make that argument also are going to be the same people who say they don't get poetry. Mm-hmm. And so with my students, we read C.S. Lewis on stories. And he makes this point that there are some people who just want the entertainment. They just want the plot. Mm-hmm. And there's really nothing you can do about it because they're never going to understand why there's value to the other thing. The, other, the value to the other thing is simply to slow down and observe and to feel life and to realize the details and the stuffness of life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that really is all it comes down to. And if you don't see any value to that, there's, there is value to it. That's what Tolstoy does wonderfully. That's what poetry does wonderfully. But... It's hard to convince people that there is value to that. Well, it is something that takes time. And I think that that's one thing. We just don't live in a society that rewards people who are able to put aside the kind of time. I mean, we have a podcast. We have patrons that give us money, which is a a pretty nice (laughs) gig for us. But you can't rush through Tolstoy. You do. Jake used the word luxuriate. And it's really true. That's what Tolstoy was designed. This novel was not designed for you to tick it off of your summer reading list. It was designed for you to take six months, take a year, take 
take some time and yeah, and in a world where it, give yourself uh, to it. You know, there weren't five million modes of content delivery where you weren't hooked up to the web, where you didn't have an Apple TV or a Roku or Fire Stick, and you couldn't just like subscribe to Disney Plus and Netflix and. Well, and I sympathize with that, by the way. I mean, I had to read this novel, but also I had to keep up with The Mandalorian and me and the wife are watching our way through West Wing and there's new music that I want to listen to. And I've got, you know, a job and a church and friends and all that stuff's more important than any of the things I just mentioned. So I get it. But if you can make a little space for it, if you can prioritize it, it'll it'll, it'll reward you. Yeah. What I was going to say is it was created for a time when there just weren't as many things. Right. And, and so yeah. you are t- saying no to more things when you say yes to Tolstoy, and it's can be a painful decision. But but actually, somebody once asked me if he said he doesn't have a lot of time to read, and when he does, he has time to read only little chunks. Yeah. And he asked me if War and Peace would be good for that. I told him, yeah, actually. Yes, actually. War and Peace is pretty perfect for that. That's what I think, too. Here's my advice, though, if you're me. Maybe most people are smarter than me. It's possible. But- I made a little chart of the characters because they all have these goofy, actually, and yes, there is one at the beginning of the book, which might be enough for most people, but I also wrote like yeah. a little like sticky noted. I, I put, yeah, Jake's got a sticky story, note. I put a sticky note on the character pages. Which this wonderful translation that we've been reading, Pavar and Volansky has that. It's actually yeah. Tolstoy's. Um, is that Tolstoy's? Okay, yeah. great. It's at the beginning. That's of awesome. The That's piece. awesome. But they also, you know, they have names like Daria is also Dolly is also this is also that. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's just confusing. And so I wrote, I actually wrote little descriptions of like, this is Pierre. He's the guy that we meet doing this and he stands to inherit the money. Like I had a little one line. Yeah. This is Maria. She's the one that's like super spiritual and kind of sad. And just so I could jog my memory because it took me a couple hundred pages before I was just. Before you knew them. I was just dri- jiving with it. Yeah. I really do think, and I've recommended, I've actually done the same thing to multiple people where I've said, actually. War and Peace is one of those books that every little chapter is sort of episodic. It, mm-hmm. It's a scene in and of itself, and it all builds and it accumulates, but you can actually sit down and read three pages at a time. Yeah, and the chapters and are short. not a big, I mean, like that is how long a chapter often will be is like two or three pages, four or five at most, most yeah. of the time. And you can do that and get a nice little satisfying chunk. The only caveat to that is don't, go a week or two without taking in an episode yeah you know or you will lose start to lose track yeah but you that's but i mean i'm sorry if this offends some people but you know i just thought we just complained about all the distractions and stuff that are in this modern day and age we also got things like spark notes and google well and and in the back i did not realize this until like a couple of days ago but in the very back of this book that this volume that we have uh, there is super helpful, yeah. A little summary of each part of each volume, and you know they group some chunks of chapters together, and it's just the little beginning. So this is like, oh yeah, what what's happened so far? You can go back and get your bearings actually pretty easily if you've lost your place. Volume one, part one, chapters one through four. Petersburg, a soirée at Anna Pavlovna Scherer's arrival of Prince Vasily Kurigan, his daughter Helena, his son Ippolit. Princess Liza Bolkonsky and Pierre Bezukhov and other guests. Conversations about Napoleon and various society topics. Arrival of Prince Andrei Bolkonsky. Right. Pretty handy. Pretty handy. And the internet is full of guides and notes. And I mean, take advantage of, you've got a smartphone. It's a bicycle for your mind. If it helps you get through war and peace, then don't feel guilty about it. So much the better. Using it for good instead of evil. 
Uh, you got through war and peace. Yeah. Who cares if you needed help? Yeah. How many people have done that? Yeah. That's also one of those novels I would say, if you want to spoil it for yourself, it's, I wouldn't say it's a big deal. I, if, you, if, big you, deal. if you kind of want to know where it's going so that you can have your bearings. Because, if you're smart, you're going to figure it out from the first yeah, part. It ain't, it ain't about <laughs> At least spoilers in, and surprises. Yeah, in a crinina, it was the same way. It's, yeah. That is another beautiful thing about Tolstoy is it's just because the plot doesn't matter, you don't have to worry it's about, not about plot you candy. don't have yeah. to. Well, Crinina is particularly interesting because it's got one major plot element one splashy thing that happens to one character that everybody kind of knows. Splashy. Like if you, if you know one thing from the novel, you know that that happens. And yeah. so you know the big thing that's going to happen yeah. and it's it's building up towards it. Um, I said literally splashy. Yeah, it's literally, yeah. I, I, I appreciated it. I didn't take the time to appreciate it verbally, Brandon, Thanks. but mentally I was shaking your hand. Good job. Um, Thanks. Yep. That part where they splash around in the, the mud while they're That's uh, right. They're that's hunting. what I was thinking about. Uh, all right, guys. Patrons, let's call them out. We'll hey, be back wait. next week with some more specific. Uh, Should we read the responses to what character you sympathize with? Yeah, we s- tell people we'll do this. We got a whole bunch of some ridiculous responses. Okay, somebody said Andre. Cool, that's a good one. Somebody said Napoleon. Brendan asked on. <laughs> what a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty funny. Brendan asked on at the booking Instagram. Yeah, so we promise that we'll read these. So I, I need to. Yeah, please. Peter Pan, somebody said. Okay. That sounds like a wise acre. Somebody said Anatole. <laughs> wonder who that was. What a, what a jerk. Somebody <laughs> said off topic. The last Jedi episode is three hours. Yes, it is. And every moment of it's worth it. Just like, It's like reading War and Peace, folks. It's the War and Peace of Last Jedi criticism. <laughs> I stand by it. Actually, Brandon's lovely wife texted me this morning. This is the day that our last Jedi episode. And she said, was there a mistake? I see that the thing is listed as three hours. I said, it's possible there was a mistake, but if so, it was an intentional one. Um, so it really is three hours. Oh, yeah, it's three hours. Yeah. So this person says, at the bookening, cantante favorito. I don't even know what that means. Cantante favorito? Yeah. Somebody needs to look that up. Who cantante. hasn't enjoyed some delicious favoritos? Somebody said Natasha. Good. And that's it. We had some good responses there. Yeah, some good responses. Yeah, that's a good That's good interaction with that one. Yeah, follow the follow at the bookening on Instagram Favorite singer. and Twitter. That's a cantante. Cantante favorite. I guess they were asking what our singer. favorite singer is. That's like their response is who's our favorite is that, singer. Oh, Natasha, maybe. Who's okay. my favorite war and peace? Well, who's your favorite singer? Uh, maybe they were just yeah. making a Natasha, Natasha thing. Yeah. Natasha. There you go. Yeah. Well, good. If nobody they, said Pierre. Yeah, it's a little sad. I'll say Pierre. Pierre is probably my favorite character. I, that's tough. That's toughy. Levin's my Actually, favorite character. Andre. Andre. It's up there. Eleven's my favorite character, and that's probably ultimately why I would say Anna Karenina is the <laughs> better novel. It's character. not yeah. the plotting. I think the characters are actually richer in that. But we can talk about that next time. The maybe. biggest candidate, and Natasha, is also one of my favorite characters. She's great. She's great. I don't know that I actually like her. Like I don't no. want to hang out with her, but, but she's, she's she's a well-drawn young lady. Okay, there we go. All right. Why don't uh, you guys... Just shout them. Nah, you got to do something better than that. Uh, you say... What superhero they remind you of? Jake Robert and Ron of the Lovebirds. Bill and Helen Parr. The Art Philanthony Dodger. Or Bob. Bob and Helen Parr. Yeah, uh, Spider-Man. The Philanthony Cigar Store. Spider-Man Noir. The Ultimate, or the, the Ultimate. The Immortal Chelsea E. The Black Widow. Wow. Just, yeah, we're going to run out of superheroes. Jimmy Beam no, and Little Annie Oka. You were allowed to just make up superheroes. Uh, uh. <laughs> 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 he just opened up, please blew my mind. I, I got lost. Uh. The Gunslinger. Cool. Lily of the Valley. 
The Lily. <laughs> and Ernesto, the lovebirds. Falcon and the Winter Soldier. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> like the birds. The Keith Master. I, bird that's... The Keith Master, start. the uh, Page Master. There you go. <laughs> that quality, great movie. David's Mighty Men Trekking? Uh, Optimus Prime. John and Jill and Little Baby Mac. Uh, Batman and Robin. <laughs> Jay and Katie, who are cold and love cheese, and also C.S. Lewis, until, including until we have faces. Oh, you know, they did an... They're the pars. I'm sorry to whoever... Uh, they did an amazing... Uh, oh, they actually Halloween did that. Thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was awesome. Yep, yep, yep. I saw the pictures of that. I did too. Fairy Princess of Wonder and Happiness, Mother Beth. Ah, uh, Wonder Woman. That's right. Console Prime, Adam. <laughs> uh, Doctor Strange. Jeremy the Dark Hooded, Lord of Death. Iron Man. Nathan, not me. Captain America. Maya! Maya! Shuri. Yeah, that's a good one. Ryan the Red Avenger, Judith of the Ladies of Justice. Black Panther. They're both Black Panther. <laughs> Danny the Dude. Danny the Dude. The Hulk. There you go. DJ Sammy G. Bla- uh, Hawkeye. Benny and Dan and Tiberius. Thor. Eric and Catherine Loki. from Yon. Professor and Lady X. Professor Xavier. Lavender's Green Dildo. Lavender's, Lavender's Blue. Lavender's, Lavender's Green Dildo. I love you too. Wolverine. No Constrictor. Uh, Snake Man. <laughs> <laughs> Mare Chief. Cyclops. The Fair and Fragrant Maiden Chloe. Poison Ivy. Six Pack Zack with a mean <laughs> attack and Catherine with a knack for laying down the smack. Batman. Anthony is cold and hates life, liberty, and the pursuit of cheese. Superman. Jujutsu yeah. Jeffrey, the Texas Ranger. Walker, the Texas Ranger. Aquaman. Rachel. 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 Aquaman. Leopard Tank Thomas. Cyborg. Yeah. Midnight Ninja Ellen. Batgirl. Yeah. Queen Kangeta. <laughs> Some girl from Black Panther. What's her name? Uh, Owami. Okoye. Okoye. Okoye, yeah. That's, that's kind of like Owami. Return of the Jedediah. Luke Skywalker. Yeah, of course. Jay of Wrath and Ruin. Baby Yoda. <laughs> uh, you win. He's Baby Yoda? <laughs> yeah, he's Baby Aww. Yoda. <laughs> you win, Jay. Cool. Good for him. All right. All right. Bye. Support the booking at patreon.com forward slash the booking. And we'll be back with more War and Peace, uh, more specifically delving into the novel next week. Bye. Bye.